Welcome to episode number 56 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a production of Christ Covenant Church here in Centralia, Washington. We are in Lewis County of Washington, and we are hoping to spread the glories of Reformed theology and covenant renewal worship throughout the land. We were planted on May 23rd of 2021, and the following is the audio from our Lord's Day worship service that took place on July 25th. If you would like to join us, if you would like to be a part of Christ Covenant Church and what we're doing, please head over to lewiscounty.church, and you will find on there uh, our current lists of activities and, of course, worship times and locations. In the audio on today's episode, we hear from Elder Luke Murky. He walks us through much of the liturgy, and we hear a sermon from Les Doyle. Wonderful things, both of them. And it was our pleasure, in fact, to welcome Les and his lovely wife, Kay, into membership on that same day. So we've included those, uh, those membership vows in the audio as well. Hope you enjoy the sermon, and I hope you join us for Lord's Day worship this coming Lord's Day. Okay, our meditation this morning, we're looking at Genesis 9. This is part of the lectionary readings that is also on the front of your handout. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Let us pray. Father, you have been faithful in establishing covenants with your people, with the birds of the air, with the beats of the field, and with every other living thing on earth. We come humbly before you to renew covenant, and we ask that you bless our worship this morning. We ask this with faith and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Okay, our call to worship comes from Psalm 136, 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. Lift up your hearts. So most of our uh, our meditation and look at our confessionary, as we step into confession, we're looking at some of these passages that are shown on the front of the bulletin. We're taking the readings from the lectionary and looking more here at Genesis 9. Okay, our meditation uh, in Genesis... We look at this, and uh, we're reminded of God's covenant with Noah. Uh, his covenant was with the family, with the rest of the world, as they stepped off the ark, and they're tested and tasked with the rebuilding and repopulating the earth. So in Genesis 9, he said, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant 
God, between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is in the earth. Now, I know that this is uh, not any new news to Joe, as I've heard him emphasize this very verse before. But did you catch what Noah had recorded for us? Did you catch whose reminder that the rainbow is in the sky or the bow in the sky was? It actually wasn't a reminder for us. It was a reminder for God. So when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. God says that when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember it. So often when we see a rainbow in the sky, and I know I've done this as well, we say or think, hey, there's God's reminder for me that he will never flood the earth again. Well, it's not really that we need the reminder. So it's God. God God put it there for him to keep covenant with us and the rest of the creatures that are on the earth. Now, we don't need a reminder to feel good or feel safe about our position on this earth because we default to sin. We don't default to an attitude of humility or obedience. God knows that we will mess up again and again and keep sitting. So he puts this reminder in the sky for him that he will remember the promise that he made to us, that his covenant. So we should be blessed and encouraged that God is so faithful and so merciful that he continues to lead us and to guide us. And when, even when we turn on him, even when we are sinning again and again, and not remembering his covenant that he made with us, we remember that God made that covenant, and he set that reminder in the sky for him. He is gracious, and we are in need of much grace. This glorious and sobering truth reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so that we may be reconciled to God. So as you are able, please kneel with me. Lord, we know that our default is to sin, to disobey, to covet, lie, cheat, and hate. Lord, please help us in our unbelief. Help us to recognize your gracious and merciful love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son to die for us on the cross. Help us to see the amazing worth of this and your amazing holiness, which is in stark contrast to our sinful and lustful desires. Cleanse us and wash us with the precious blood of Jesus, we pray. And now please take this time to confess your own personal sins to God in silence. We pray all things, Lord, in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Please rise. People of God, hear the, uh, the assurance of pardon. Hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thank Let you. us sing. We have now been worshiping together as a body for 10 Sundays. We finally made it to double digits. These have been glorious days indeed, and we have fervently prayed for the Lord to fill our ranks with more members. Uh, when we started, we started with 11 households, and every week we've asked him to fill our ranks. So today we get to see him provide for us yet another household to our midst. Les and Kay Doyle have been with us since the beginning. And um, Les and Kay, wherever, yeah, could you guys come on up? So Les and Kay have been with us since the very beginning, and in the grace of God, they have both felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit to peacefully come into membership with our particular body. What a, what a glorious thing that is. And church membership should be seen as a needed 
and necessary joy. The author of Hebrews implores us. He says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Church membership marks out who belongs to whom, so that care and shepherding can take place on behalf of the members by the elders and the deacons. Last week, we ordained Luke Murky as another elder here at Christ Covenant Church. We will, Lord willing, soon be calling and ordaining deacons, and one day, once again in the providence of God, we will call a pastor into our midst. These men will take this office knowing they must give an account. The question is, to whom are they responsible? The answer? They are responsible to those who are marked out by church membership. For the elders to guard and shepherd, we must have a list of names unto whom we are called to give an account. Elders are not responsible for every Christian in a particular town. They're responsible to those to whom they are, they are called to give an account. Church membership is the way the church shepherds the people of God. Members are provided, among many other things, accountability in their lives, as well as a chance to practice joyful submission to their leaders. That actually is a blessing. Likewise, the local church, our particular body, us, we get blessed too. Um, we get blessed when, we, when members come in because we have the loyalty of her members as we together strive for peace in our mission to batter down the gates of hell and convert the nations to Christ. So Lesson K, it is with tremendous joy that we welcome you into our midst. As you take your vows, know that there is great rejoicing throughout this room as we are seeing right now in real time the Lord answering our fervent prayers and your fervent prayers for you and for this church. Amen. Glory be to God. All right. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Okay, Les, I'm going to ask you the questions on behalf of your household. I'll read through all of them, and you guys can respond with an amen or yes, as you agree. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in need of salvation by Christ? And do you believe in the Lord Jesus, receiving and resting upon him alone as he is offered in the gospel? Have you been baptized in accordance with his word? Do you swear in the name of God and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that is becoming of followers of Christ? And do you swear in the name of God to support the ministry of this church in its worship and work, submitting to its government and discipline while pursuing its purity and peace? Amen. And, and as to those heads representing households coming to membership as households, um, at, at Christ Covenant Church, would you please respond in affirming this agreement uh, with a, a hearty amen as well? Amen. Good morning, Christ Covenant Church. It's an honor to be here for sure and very humbling to be before you. I was thinking uh, as Luke began the service and as we joined together and the things Luke spoke about, the scripture that was read, thinking about the songs that we sung to this morning thus far, and just what an amazing coincidence it is that all these things are, are all tied together 
for what I'm getting ready to talk about. Yeah, there's no coincidence, right? That as fervently as I've been praying and trying to prepare for this morning, I know Luke and I know the, the men, uh, Andrew and Frank and, and the other uh, folks up here, the folks on the piano and everybody has been preparing equally as diligently as I have, for sure. And then everybody else here. One of the, one of the things that attracted us to this church and this body of believers is, is the, the seriousness of the worship here. That it's not, it's not cold and calculating, but rather it's real and, and it matters and, and, and it's what we're here to do. That we're here to worship God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the primary course. It's not our happiness and all of that. So no coincidence. And the music this morning, as uh, Anna got a hold of me and asked what the topic du jour would be today, um, Anna spent a lot of time, and and, uh, her and Sarah spent time figuring out which songs might be appropriate for us this morning. And I really appreciate that. It matters, and and it's for us, and it's for us to uh, escort the king to his rightful throne on this Lord's Day morning. By way of introduction to the sermon this morning, I want to read a portion of scripture out of Acts chapter 9. And I'll begin here in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints and at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But think of this, the Lord says to Ananias from his great throne in a voice only the Lord can muster and have he says but the Lord said to him go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel verse 16 for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name I want to talk, the, the, the topic this morning is about being a disciple, being a disciple of the great king, being a disciple of almighty God himself. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and here you are. Here we are gathered on this Sunday morning, on this Lord's Day morning, to worship almighty God. And we are considered his disciples. Not by any choice of ours, but because Jesus said, you will be my disciples if you follow me. And as any, anybody trying to uh, begin this sermon would, would look at the word disciple and what a disciple is. And I don't, I don't have logos and the fancy stuff on the computers. I go to my shelf and pull my strongs out of my vines and all those stuff that the kids may not be aware of. But disciple in the Greek is mathetes. 
And in the Strong's, it means a student, a follower, a committed learner and follower. And usually in the New Testament, we're talking about Jesus Christ. But I like what the vine says as well, and it has what I think is a bit of an important distinction to it. It says a disciple was not only a pupil, but an adherent. Hence, they are spoken of as imitators of their teacher. And I think that's critical as we consider ourselves as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, looking at this now, there was, there's six particular portions of Scripture in which Jesus is speaking directly about discipleship and what it means to be a disciple and what it's going to cost to be a disciple and what he expects and what he demands, what he requires, not what he suggests, not what he hoped for, but rather what he wants and what he will require of us as his disciples. So I have six verses, six portions of Scripture, and I wanted to, I, I looked at them, and many of them were very similar, okay? They, they say somewhat the same type of thing. So I, I wanted to distill it down, so I, I, I'm at two right now, and they're in your bulletin. And I want to share them with you before um, I, be, I attempt to expound on it. In Mark eight thirty four through 38, it says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, this is Jesus, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And the second portion of Scripture that I want to present to you this morning is out of Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. I happen to be using the ESV. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but rather a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Kind of will take your breath away, I think. At least it did mine. And one of the one of the way one of the uh, the manners that the Holy Spirit kind of led me to this, as uh, Luke and Joe have given me liberty to kind of uh, land in a in a topic, if you will. Was I, I was praying one evening, and I don't. I, it, the, the scripture popped into my mind that uh, in Luke, which says, "And he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is unfit for the kingdom of God." And I remember reading that as a as a new Christian and thinking, "Well, I don't know what that really that means, you know." But you know, over the course of of a few years now, the Lord has uh, distinguished certain things and, and illuminated certain truths, and I do understand it. I do understand what it means. I understand when when A.W. Tozer told Leonard Ravenhill one day, he says, you know, Len, when you see a man walking out of town carrying his cross, you know he's not coming back. That's what being a disciple means, and it's what it is. And I'm going to tell you, as Christians, we cannot live vicariously through other Christians. We can't do it. God will not allow it. We, we We belong to Christ, 
individually and we gather corporately. Being a disciple is a serious, serious thing, as we're going to see. It's not a hobby or a part-time volunteer extracurricular activity for sure, right? It's not. I find it just astounding and staggering how much work has gone in to, into the planting of this church by certain individuals that are, that are with us this morning. Certain families that have given up, given up um, uh, a lot of time with their, with their husbands and fathers to allow this kingdom work to happen and for this, this to occur and for God to firmly plant his lampstand in this church. You know, God refuses. He will not accept a minor role in our life. In fact, God will not be subordinate to any person or thing in our life. We know that. We know it. But how does it affect us? And if we know that, why don't we live like that? Now, I'm preaching to me, okay? This, is, this has been a rough, rough couple of weeks with this for me. You know, Christians view the cross as a really, really cherished symbol, and we should, of atonement, forgiveness, and grace, and love. For us Christians, New Testament Christians in 2021 on this planet, it can be very difficult for for us to understand the significance of when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, what he means by that. What and how the Jews around him, who are his disciples in the flesh, in the present, in Palestine at the time, knew what that meant. Because I'm going to tell you what, the Jews hated the thought of crucifixion, period. I'm not, this isn't a sermon about the passion or anything like that. But I'm going to tell you, crucifixion was, was the most horrendous and anonymous way to die. And we know, we know Christ embraced it. We cherish the cross. You know, when Jesus expects us and requires us to pick up our cross and follow him, we need to be willing, we need to be willing to join the ranks of the despised and the doomed. We do. But here's the thing. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus was often asked certain things. And there was occasion when he would pause and he would teach. And he would describe and he would illuminate and he would do all these things. But so often, Christ said, follow me. Not in some abstract way, but in a real way. When I remember one of the disciples that's escaping me right now, forgive me, but, Lord, where are you staying? Well, Jesus said, well, you see that temple up there? We'll take a right and then take it. No, he said, follow me and I'll show you where I'm staying. That's, that's the nature of our Lord. That's the nature of the Christ. To be our example, to, to, to show us. And to not expect anything of us that he really he wasn't willing to do himself as God. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing to consider and for us to digest and, 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 and allow it to just be, become integral to us as Christians and as disciples of Christ. We couldn't desire a better guide for this. For the difficulty that Christ is putting before us. And think about how contrary this is to our natural inclinations. We know with what blind love men regard, highly regard themselves, ourselves. 
We know how highly we esteem ourselves. We know how devoted we are to ourselves and our sinful desires. I don't know how many times I've been in conversation with somebody and I just halt what I'm saying so I can give them a chance to talk a minute because I want them to get done so they can hear what I have to say. Because guess what? My opinion is is really, really astute and well thought out and you know what? I'm going to present it so well, I'm going to blow you out of the water, pal. That's what we think about ourselves. And as I was looking at uh, some material for this sermon, I came across um, a portion of, uh, from Calvin, John Calvin, my good buddy. And I want to share it with you. It's very short. Calvin says, It may be added that, though God lays both on good and bad men the burden of the cross, yet unless they willingly bend their shoulders to it, they are not said to bear the cross. The patience of the saints, therefore, consists in bearing willingly the cross which has been laid on them. Luke adds the word daily, which is very emphatic. For Christ's meaning is that there will be no end to our warfare until we leave the world. Let it be the uninterrupted exercise of the godly that when many afflictions have run their course, they may be prepared to endure fresh afflictions. Now, one of the key words in there that I've highlighted when I looked at this a few dozen times is the word willingly. That's what's required of it. That we, that's what separates us because there, there is trial and there is tribulation out there, right? We know that. Jesus said in John 16, there will be trial and tribulation in this world. But again, Jesus doesn't just teach us something. He shows us something and he leads us in something. He says, but take courage for I have overcome the world. He shows us, and so we willingly take up this cross. We willingly carry this thing. Because we are devoted to our Savior. We are devoted to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The cross is the heart of the gospel, and hearing the cross is a central requirement to discipleship. This is for everybody. This is for Josephine and Ruthie every, every bit as much as it is for an old guy like me. You know, confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart God raised him from the dead, certainly that is sufficient for salvation, right? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. But that's just the beginning. It's it's important and and it, it establishes us, it plants us, it takes us and puts us in a certain direction. A direction left to our own device and in and of our own self, we would never choose one, we don't have the strength, nor are we equipped to do, to do that trail, to do that road, but Jesus sets us on it. And the whole time, once we, once we are born again, here we are now set in the kingdom of God, previously unobtainable to us, but by, but by the action of God, by the action of the Holy Spirit of God in our heart, He changes us, and He takes a heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. Yet while we're on that road, okay, we are separate now. I want to move around. Okay, we're separate now, but we can still hear the voices. We can still hear those voices over there going, Hey, Les, have you forgotten about us? Don't forget us. Don't you want to come back? Doesn't, does, isn't there things over here as well that are appealing? We hear that. Remember in Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to prevent, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to be living sacrifices. Living things don't tend to be real, real stable and stagnant. They tend to want to move. They tend to want to climb off altars and things like that. But it's God, it's the Holy Spirit of God that transforms us and renews our mind. Things that heretofore were just folly to us, that were just ridiculous to even consider, now all of a sudden become so cherished. You know, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't ask us to just go, you know what, Les, hey, you need to tighten up a few things in your life, pal. That's not happening. He calls us to bear a cross, and I'm going to tell you, Bearing the cross separates an admirer from a true disciple. I think of Moses in Hebrew, when uh, he's referred to in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Listen to this in verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We keep our eyes on the reward, and, and the songs that we sang this morning alluded to and spoke specifically about the faithfulness of God. Not our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. It's no accident. I didn't coordinate it with Luke when he talked about the rainbow and the symbol of the rainbow. Do we really think God needs to be reminded of anything? But God deigned, he condescended to tell us that the rainbow is a symbol to remind me. And we're going, listen, God, God is faithful. We see the rainbow and we go, God is being reminded of this. Because he loves us, and it matters to him, and we matter to him. I remember when I, uh, I, I, I was born again at a late age, um, and I remember when, I, when the Lord saved me, I, uh, I had this zeal, my wife can attest to it, and I pray I still have it. It might be a little bit more, I don't know, whatever. Uh, mature? Let's, let's use that word. But I remember sitting with her in our house up in Ording uh, at the time. And I said, you know, I just, I got to go out. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a two-week-old Christian. I'm a baby. You know, Ava's been a, has been a Christian longer than I have. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, I just got to go out. I got to go out and tell people this is too good. It's too good. I can't keep it in. She goes, okay, so what are you going to do? And I learn every day about faith from my wife. She goes, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'll make some PB&J sandwiches and go and hand them out in the corner in Tacoma and just tell people about Christ. Okay, so, well, you know, I'm not quite sure if in so many words she said, I don't know if you're ready for that. 
You know, and that was that was that was good advice for me. But you see the heart that God puts in us and the thing he generates in us. And I remember at work one day somebody said, "You say you're a Christian now because I let everybody know." Well, how do you how did you know you were a Christian? How do you know? And you know that was a good question. Every one of us in this room, if you haven't had that asked of you, you're going to have it asked. How do you know? Elias, how do you know you're a Christian? And you know, when that that question got posed to me, I had to think about it a minute. I said, okay, um, I just kind of know this stuff, but what can I say to this person in front of me? I said, there was was a moment in time, I had to think about it, because how can I articulate this? How can I share this? Okay, there's a, there was a moment in time which prior to, the only one I cared about was me. The only one I was concerned about was me. I cared about what was good for me. I, was, I cared about what brought me pleasure. I, I, cared, I cared about my family, certainly, and all of that. But there was a point in time in which God saved me and that, from that point beyond, Christ became the most important person in my life. There was a desire planted in me deeply that I, I could not live, I could not function, I could not do anything apart from Christ. That's just the way it is. God puts that in us. This desire that heretofore was not present and we could care less because we'll talk about godlessness and the impotence of the, of the leadership of the nation and the, and, the, and the world and all that later maybe. But all of a sudden, God is, is the one. He's the one we cherish more than anything. You think about it. You, we understand it in this room when Jesus says you must hate your father and your mother for my sake. We know what he means by that because we know how much Jesus treasured the law and how much and what he felt about honor thy father and thy mother. We know that Jesus wasn't wasn't mandating something contrary to that, but we understand what he meant. He said, I I will couch no subordinate, no subordination to anything or anybody, even your own spouse, even in your own children. I'm the one. You know, when we think about the, the traditional Moravian uh, cry, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Jesus is the preeminent one. He is the, he is the priority in our lives now. And that's the way it should be. And I remember before I got saved, when my wife got saved, I thought about, okay, the, you know, I tried to think about it in, in non-kingdom and non-Holy uh, Spirit terms. Well, what's that mean and what's it going to cost, you know, kind of what's this costing? And I went... You know, how can I love this person, Jesus, more than I love my wife? Because won't I be won't I be abandoning her? Won't I be making her second? I mean, I'm already I already know that how selfish I am, and all of that. But here's the thing: look at what happens to us when we devote everything about us, all of our energy, all of our heart, all our desire, all our love, all our worship, everything to Christ. Look at how that manifests itself in the who we are. Because when we talk about discipleship, there's a lot of things that, that make us look like doormats, right? But that's not the case. But see, no, nobody out there knows that. When I say out there, I'm talking about the world. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But 
They don't know, they, they don't understand that. Paul said in Corinthians, the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They don't know. They don't understand it, nor can they understand it. It's all folly and foolishness to them. So what does it mean to take up your cross? Now let me, let me begin by telling you what it doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean the burden of carrying a strained relationship, okay? That's not picking up. That's not taking up your cross. It's not the burden of a, carrying a thankless job. My boss is mean to me. I hate what I'm doing. But, you know, it's my cross to bear. No, it's not that either. It's not the burden of carrying a physical illness for those of us who, who do suffer affliction, right? That's not our cross. Now, is it important that we put our trust and faith in Christ? Absolutely. Is it, is it important how we respond to these things as they're presented to us? Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not nullifying that or diminishing that. But that's not picking up our cross. It doesn't mean to patiently bear the aches and pains of everyday life. When Thad tells me how much Aaron snores, that it's not his cross to bear, man. And I'm kidding, by the way. That's not our cross to bear. Fundamentally, bearing our cross means to what? That we must die to ourself. That's what it means. In, in simple terms, straightforward. It means that we must crucify our own interests. That our interests are not ours anymore. Remember, it's, the Bible tells us we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Paul said in Philippians 121, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's a lot of Paul in this sermon today because the Holy Spirit had his fingerprints all over Paul, had his hands all over him, squeezing him and moving him. And I want to share a simple statement from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the martyr. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And following Jesus to Golgotha is not some annoying detour. It's, it's our main road. It's our main road. And how different is this? How different is this truth than what the typical gospel presentation may look like? Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I'm not mocking that. I'm not because it's true. But can you imagine if that was just it? If I talked to some young person and said, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, all you got to do is put your trust and faith in him, well, I'll do that. I'd be a fool not to. And they do, and right out the gate, something hits them. Where's this guy, Jesus, that bald dude was telling me about a couple days ago? I just got this diagnosis, and man, it's not looking good. Where is this Jesus person? Can you imagine an evangelistic encounter that included come, follow Jesus? You may face the loss of friends, family, rep, reputation, career, and even your own life. How's that going to go over? Probably not too well. And I want to pose a second question. What will it cost to be a true Christian, a true disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ? 
And it made me think about a, a quote I remember from J.C. Ryle. He says, a religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. So there are some costs involved to following Christ. We need to pick up our cross daily and follow him, but there's costs involved, and let's consider some of those. What cost us what? Our self-righteousness, okay? Which we're so fond of, which we like to point out to others, which we like to laud over other people. It will cost us our self-righteousness, and I think of Isaiah 64, verse 6, where most of us are familiar with that, with that verse. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. The cost of our own righteousness includes the cost of our own morality. The key, the operative phrase here being our own. Okay? And we must willingly give it up. When we are the standard of truth, when we are the standard by which everything around us is measured, (laughs) no bueno, no, not good. Not good. Because I know all kinds of traps and, and, and pits that I can put myself in. Because I rely on myself and, and what my standard is. Remember the, the last sermon I preached, I made a, made a, uh, used as an example, when we, when we elevate ourselves because our sin doesn't quite look so bad on someone else. You know, the old, I may be a drug dealer, but I give everybody a fair count thing. Those are the, those are the standards by which we would measure ourselves. But we got to give that up. The standard, the standard is, remember, the standard is impeccability, it's holiness, it's righteousness. That, that, that is not ours. We must pay the cost of our own respectability. You can't be respectable. Here, here, let me clue you in on something, everybody. You cannot be respectable in the world unless you are of the world. Period. I defy anybody to tell me and show me, show me different. You can't. Now, some people may respect your good deeds and all that. But I can tell you what, there's, there's no room for God in their thoughts and how they consider what you're doing, how many old ladies you help across the street, or how many checks you write to the Red Cross. Because you know what? The pagans do that too. And they do it to esteem themselves and, the, and to raise themselves up. And the odds are, knowing, knowing my finances, that the pagan over there may write a bigger check than I can. And be even more esteemed by the world. If you want respectability from the world, you're going to have to be of the world. And we can't. We renounce that. Cost of our own righteousness may be considering our own praying. Praying on our own and in our own strength. Remember the quote by John Bunyan? He said, he said the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to to condemn the whole world. But here's the thing. We no longer longer pray the way we used to. I think it's in James. Correct me if I'm wrong, people. You receive not because you ask not, and when you ask, you ask wrongly. Right? Right? We need to be praying. We're going to pray right because the Holy Spirit now has control over us. The Holy Spirit is in us and indwells us. No longer am I going to pray, Oh, Lord, 
Boy, you got to get me out of this. Lord, why is this happening to me? That happened to me in the hospital over in Providence. Eight days looking at the ceiling, not wanting any visitors. I didn't, I didn't want anybody in there. Well, Lord, why am I here again? Why has this got to go on? And I'm going to tell you, by the third day, the Holy Spirit worked with what was, I don't know, maybe he gets frustrated or grieved or whatever. But after two days of praying this self-pitying prayer, it was, it was, it was over. It, changed, it was just, Lord, just let me do all this well. Let me do it well, Lord. And that's the Holy Spirit's work in us. Our prayer changes, and our prayer is unacceptable, and it does, it, it does, it does, it's not effective before we come to Christ. But as disciples of Christ, our prayers are going to change. The motivation of our prayers are going to change. The countenance in our heart and the posture that we take before God and before His throne is going to change as disciples. Even our own Bible reading. Our own Bible reading. How many times have we closed our Bible and went, wow, man, I read 12, verse, 12 chapters today in Psalms. Really? What chapters were they? Well, I don't know, they were kind of in the first third, I think. Well, what would you learn from them? What you, would you get out of it? Well, um, you know, it was just the achievement the mechanical achievement, if you will, of, of, of accomplishing this, what I, what I always call, when I think about the Bible and, and being involved with the Bible, the Word of God, is this quantitative versus qualitative thing. Well, I read a lot of chapters, but man, I don't know if I could tell you what I read. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be better for us to read one verse and just meditate on that verse because because it's it the depth of it is just indescribable and it never ends. Now we we do that sometimes, and I love it. Uh, I know Kay will shut her Bible sometimes. She goes, you know, I started in Philippians, man. I ended up in, in Nahum or Hosea or whatever. It was just a very circuitous route, but here I am, and it was just marvelous. It was just wonderful. Our own church going. Well, you know, I checked the box today, came to church. Now let me go back out and be of the world. we got to forsake that. that. That's one of the costs for us. That this matter, this gathering matters. I don't care if the Seahawks are kicking off at 10 a.m. We're going to be here because it matters. We're not going to forsake the gathering of the brethren and being part of that body, this, cor- this corporate body, to bring our to bring the gifts that God has given us to this place and then to carry it out as we're, as we're consecrated and we're given, our, we're given our charge to go out for the remainder of the week. That not only are we receiving, but we're also giving. I remember that description of heaven and hell where hell was described as this really long buffet table full of, just full of food. And there were all these people around it in hell. And they were all emaciated and they were wasting away. Because none of them had any elbows. And they couldn't get the food to their mouth. So then we, then we switched the scene to heaven. And there's this long table there. And everybody looks healthy and fit. And you look and you go, wait a minute. They don't have any elbows either. What were they doing? They were feeding each other. That's why coming here is important. 
That's why studying the Word of God is important. That's why being on the horn when we know somebody is, is going through a struggle, that's why it's important. Church going is just not a box to check off on our list. Even receiving our own, even receiving the sacraments, we can, we can pervert and corrupt that ourselves, left to our own device. When we do these noble and virtuous things on our own terms, in our own power, without regard to deference and worship of God, apart from the Holy Spirit, we are walking as a disciple to ourselves and to the world, not the sovereign king of the universe. But when we pay the price of our own self-righteousness, we gain Christ's righteousness, which is perfect and which is imperishable. And standing in the righteousness of Christ and having that imputed to us through faith allows us to go before the throne of grace humbly yet boldly. Being a disciple of Christ will cause us to, will require us to give up these pet sins that we like to hang on to. To get to 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 give up these these compromises that so that can so easily entangle us. There's no secret truce with any special sin which we love. We must count every sin, every sin, as a deadly enemy. And we must we must hate every false way. And I was thinking there's a portion in Ezekiel 18.31 where he's talking to the exiles to repent. Where the heart of God says to the the exiles, Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Now, I think last week, or no, not last week, last time I was up here I talked about how repentance and faith is a gift from God. So we read that portion of Ezekiel and you go, well, how are we supposed to do that? We can pay it lip service. We can say we've forsaken these sins, but unless God has done a work in our heart, it's not going to be effective. It's not going to be true, right? Really. So I scratched my head and said, wait a minute. Let's look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for what? For he who promised is faithful. God is faithful. He is the one, he is the one that moves us. He is the one that gives us the strength and the wherewithal and the faith within ourselves to, to forsake sin and see it for what it is and, 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 and feel it like David did in his bones. I was, think, I was thinking about that and thinking about Luke. In Luke 22, I remember Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. 
But what did Jesus do? He said, don't worry, I'm going to remove all the afflictions. I'm going to remove all the persecution. I'm going to remove all the challenges to your life, right? Mm, wrong. Jesus said, but. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus told that to all the disciples. I pray for you all that your faith may not fail. What do you think's happening right now? What do you think's happening right now in, 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 in the heavenlies? Remember Daniel chapter 10 when he was praying so fervently and, 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 and fasting because he lamented the fact that a lot of the exiles didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. They were kind of happy in Babylon, right? And God dispatched an angel to go encourage and reassure Daniel. But Daniel ended up fasting and praying for 21 days. And then on the 21st day, all of a sudden, the angel shows up and Daniel sees him and he falls as if dead before this guy. And the angel says, hold on, Daniel. God sent me to you to tell you that on the day you hit your knees and on the day you began your fast, things began to move in the heavenlies as a response to your prayer. But I got detained by the prince of Persia. And in fact, God sent Michael to take care of that prince. And now here I am. God, Jesus Christ himself intercedes for us. And he is, he is praying for our faith. Because this is, this is hard stuff, this discipleship. And being a disciple, there, you go, oh, boom. This is hard. But Jesus says, I pray for you that your faith will not waver, that it will not be shaken, that you will trust in me. It will cost us our own understanding of life when you think about it, being a disciple of Christ, how we, how we understand and see life. We must surrender our ignorant, rebellious, and false belief system for the absolute truth of the revelation of God in Scripture. Now, for me, the, where, how I understand spiritual warfare, I try to think of it in a, in a big and grand sense, but I also try to think of it in specifics as well. And for me, one of the, one of the lines in which the battle is being raged nonstop is the war for truth. Because we are inundated in this, in this world with false belief systems. We believe certain things. I don't know how many men I've dealt, men and women I've dealt with uh, in recovery who heard from the, from the first day of their life until they finally, were, finally left home, you are worthless and you will never amount to anything. Now, when the person in your life whom you, sh you, as a young one, should be able to trust with all their heart, hears that over and over again, it ceases to be, you know, uh, what's the point, ceases to be a question, and what's the point became, becomes your mission statement. Well, what's the point? That's the war. Because the lies are pervasive. You know... The, the narrative out there wants to wants to cajole and corner people into believing that the only answer for them is the is the government, the government which consists of a bunch of godless and impotent people. 
But we have Christ. He is, he is the one who, who, who tells us what life is and what life means, what true life means. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take, what, every thought captive to Christ. And of course, in John 8, Jesus said, If you're truly my disciples, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I think about these young folks in this room right now, and I'm very appreciative for the, the parents that they have. Because I, I, I know, the, know their parents, maybe not as well as I hope to, but I know them. And I know how they're raising these kiddos. And I know they're talking to their kids about this thing called worldview and how important that is. How important it is for these discussions to be happening. How we understand that regardless of whether you're a believer or not believer, this notion of a worldview, it answers certain questions for us. You know, why is there something rather than nothing? And there's all these other things. And man, what a, what a, what fertile ground to be talking to your children about, about faith and trust and who you should put your faith and trust in. And then why, for the ones that we cannot trust, the ones that we, we, we shouldn't have faith in, why we should be praying for them. Because they are in positions of authority, right? Being a disciple of Jesus Christ will cost us how we understand life. It will cost us friendship with the world. Kind of in the home stretch here. 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here it is, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the, of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does, not, whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world in this passage is not the planet, it's not the people on it, or it's not the creation. It's, it's the human sphere in which we live. It's, it really is the sum total of human cultures and institutions, the collective living human community. The world in First John focuses on this culture, which is at root hostile and an enemy of God. Okay, so... Anybody in here who may, as you think about this particular aspect of being a disciple, the Bible tells us that we, if we are friends with the world, we are an enemy of God. And that may be difficult. <laughs> it's probably difficult, right? Because what else? The Bible tells us we must what? Love our neighbor as ourself. So the, criti- the critical aspect of this particular portion of the sermon is that we understand what we mean when we say world. Okay? It, it, that's, that's the case in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world. You know, we have this term world all over. It's all over the, the, the Bible. 
We want to understand, and it's important that we be precise when we when we define that. So what I'm going to do, for the sake of time, is I'm going to invite anybody in here who 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 is doesn't quite understand why why we should hate the world, why the Bible tells us and encourages us to hate the world. I would have you talk to your folks, and I'm not copping out. I'm not passing the buck. But you know what? That's that's a that's a conversation so worthy to have. Because it's so important. Because we can we can have such a misunderstanding where the world where we, we hate the world and we begin to hate the people in the world. Remember, our war is not what it's not against what flesh and blood. It's against the forces and the principalities and all those things behind that cause causes behavior. And I was thinking about the world, and of course, one of the I was thinking about how the world feels about our Lord. And you're familiar with this passage in Isaiah 53, just three verses here. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Talking about our Jesus, the Messiah, the one, the one who was going to come and allow himself to be nailed to the cross, that he was destined for. This most horrific thing that the Jews saw as one of the, the most terrible thing that could happen to somebody. Have you ever come up to an come up to an off ramp where there's somebody out there with a sign? Sorry, with a sign holding up. God bless you. I need help. Whatever, and you find it very difficult to look at them and make eye contact with them. That's what's being talked about here in Isaiah. They saw they saw the Lord being persecuted, being ridiculed, being spit upon with a crown of thorns, and they hid their face from him. They didn't, they didn't even have the courage or the wherewithal to look at him. Just like sometimes we, if we don't look at that person over there, we can almost convince ourselves that they're not really there. Psalm 69, verse 4, King David laments this, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without a cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who would attack me with lies. And then we fast forward to the New Testament. Because as much as David wrote those words down, we know it's the Holy Spirit of God who wrote those words in, in Psalm 69. In John 15 and verse 20 and then verse 25, Jesus said, Remember the word that I have said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. The world will always seek to lead you away from God. Always. Like Luke was saying earlier, this doesn't start out neutral. There's There's no neutrality here, folks. None, zero, none. Even even Bob Dylan said, I think Brian Nolder even quoted this too. You got to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, maybe the Lord. 
but you're going to serve somebody. There's no neutral ground. There's no Switzerland when we talk about theology and doctrine. None. This is a hard price to consider that we live in the world. To consider that we must forsake the world. But we've got we've to have a longer vision with this, folks. Okay? As we talk about the, uh, my last cost here, if you will, it will cost us our, our plans, our well-laid, well-dreamed-out, well-thought-out plans for our own life. We, most of us have committed Proverbs 3, 3 to 5, to our memory. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshments for your bones. You know, when we think about the dreams of an unbeliever, they hinge upon their understanding and the standards that the world uses to measure success. And I'm not going to belabor that. We are Christians and we live in tension with the world. That will never not be. I remember as a young soldier, when a young guy down at Fort Bragg, this um, little knucklehead. I remember guys used to go out and they'd show up Monday morning or whatever, Sunday evening, and half of them, they'd show up with this new tattoo on their arm or whatever. And, you know, they would put, you know, skulls and daggers and blood and parrots or whatever else they wanted to tattoo on their arm. But I remember some guys rolled in with this phrase on their arm and it said, God is my co-pilot. And I remember as a young guy, I thought, wow, that's really, that's pretty cool. You know, I wasn't... Uh, I was just an aimless wanderer of the waterless places at that time. But I just thought, you know, that's pretty virtuous, pretty noble, pretty cool. You know, when he could have got the, the, the mean-looking devil or whatever, he got that. So that guy's obviously got some faith. Well, I'm going to tell you what. Can I, can I say anything more abominable to God then you know what, Lord? You are my co-pilot. If God is our co-pilot, we got a problem. We have a problem, right? Everybody, yeah, everybody's nodding their head. I love that. I love it. God is not our co-pilot. Remember, well, back to the beginning, a long time ago now this morning, but God is not subordinate to anybody. But we take our keys... To our vehicle and we give them to Jesus so that he can get in and get in the driver's seat and less ain't getting in the back seat I'm going to say Lord please pop the trunk because I want to get in there I don't even want, I don't, Lord I don't even want to know where you're taking me all I want to know is that you're the one that's taking me that's what matters these plans for our life we can't help but have them hinge and be contingent upon what the world deems as successful. I got a bunch of questions here. Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing some of your closest friends, your family, and all that? We've kind of covered that. But this morning, as I was going through the sermon, uh, this 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 portion of 1 Corinthians 4 came to me, and um, my, one of my brothers in here and I have been talking about it, but 
Paul's making a point to the Corinthian believers in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. And I think I, I'm going to use this to make a point in our context today. Here is how Paul describes the apostles, okay? This is right out of the word. Fools for Christ, weak, held in disrepute, hungry and thirsty, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, reviled, persecuted, slandered, the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He's, this is how he's describing the apostles. Now, there's more to this story. There's more to this than just this, okay? And we understand that. But I'm coming to a close here. And I want, to, I want you to consider a final cost, and that, that being our own will. We must forsake our will. And in Matthew 26, Jesus said, or it says, Then Jesus went to them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to the death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let, his, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We must forsake our own will. But here, here is the portion of this scripture that, got, that always gets to me. Because I think a lot about what the Lord has done for me. I can't help it. Nobody in my life saw this. Saw me up here talking to you, beautiful brothers and sisters. But here, here's, as we go on in verse 40, here's what happened. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? My soul is very sorrowful. Even to, the, even to death, remain here and watch with me. Could you not watch for one hour? That just crushes me. Because I, I hear it and it resonates in the hollows of my mind. Jesus, I'm your man. I will do it. I will follow you. But. I want to follow the Lord. And I know there's been so many occasions in which the Lord has kicked me and said, can't you even watch for one hour? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day morning. And Lord, we thank you for your promises and what, what being a disciple of you means. We understand that the difficulty of it. We understand that there is no accomplishment, that there's no achievement. We understand, Lord, that you told us specifically and directly that apart from you, we can do nothing. So, Lord, we, we honor that and we receive it. But, Lord, we are also uplifted by it. 
We think of how Paul told us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because or for it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Lord, you are working in us, and there can be no finer thing, there can be no more cherished thing. Lord, we truly thank you, and we praise you on this Lord's day. We worship you, we lift you up, and we give you all thanks and praise. We pray it in the name of your beloved Son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we approach the pinnacle of this covenant renewal worship service, think about what we've just been through. God's called us into his presence. And when we got into his presence, what was the first thing we thought of? We've got some sin to confess. But Jesus, in his marvelous grace and mercy, promises to forgive every sin as far as the east is from the west. And in the Old Testament, that was called the sin offering. We brought our sin offering. And in the Old Testament, those could never fully cleanse. But now they can because Jesus is our one sacrifice once and for all. And then in the Old Testament, the next, uh, the next thing that would happen, you'd present your sin offering to the Lord. And the next thing was the ascension offering. That was also known as the whole burnt offering. That whole burnt offering was lifted up to God as a display that we are all in. We are completely devoted or consecrated to God. And God smelled that whole burnt offering and he remembered. He remembered his covenant to us. And when he remembered his covenant, he invited us to eat the final meal in the Old Testament, which was the peace meal. Now, in the new covenant, things have changed But they haven't completely been done away with. Now we have the perfect sacrifice, Jesus, who calls us into his presence, cleanses us from sin, consecrates us, and um, he brings us, makes us worthy to be living sacrifices, to ascend unto our Father in heaven. And then he invites us to eat with him. And that's what we're doing right now. As Luke reminded us this morning, the primary purpose of the bow in the sky is to remind God. And the primary purpose of this meal is a meal of remembrance. We are remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus, but God is remembering his covenant to us. He's remembering that he put his name on our heads through baptism. He gave us new lives. He has set aside the old and given and breathed life into our dead bodies. And he feeds us with the body and blood of his son. We can remember and believe when we eat the bread and we drink the wine that we are proclaiming his victorious death and resurrection until he comes again. So for all who have been baptized into Christ, come and welcome to Jesus. Would you stand for the charge and the commission? The charge is this. As you go back out into the world, having been fed with the body and blood of the king, reject all of the world and everything it offers as gospel. The world offers a false gospel. Everything it offers is death. But Christ the King is life unto all who trust in him. And so take up your cross, follow after Jesus, and do not despise whatever he gives to you. Here's the Lord's benediction. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened 
with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.